well, what do you want to be when you grow up? It's a question you get asked a lot when you're first uh, kind of, <laughs> did you answer me, Michael? Oh, a teenager, yeah. It's a question you get asked a lot when you're a little kid. Uh, it's a question that makes for some kind of funny videos sometimes that you might see get posted or even a, a TV show uh, showing the answers, the ways kids answer that question. A classic question. Do you know the most popular answer for girls is veterinarian and teacher? The most popular answer for boys, athlete and pilots. Did you also know that 96% of childhood dreams are not where you actually end up? Those of you that have made it to adulthood realize, yeah, I, I had some dreams that uh, I didn't quite become a professional basketball player or whatever it might have been. I had a memory book that my mom filled out for me every year of elementary school, and one of the questions was, what do you want to be when you grow up? So I have a record of how unsure I was of my future, <laughs> right? I have a record every year of my answer changing from policeman to baseball player to fireman uh, to whatever else I might have thought I wanted to be. That uncertainty, though, continued into my high school years. You know, in high school, they start putting all this pressure on you. What do you want to major in? Where do you want to go to school? What do you want your career to be? And I was scared to death because I didn't have a clue. Every time I answered that question, I felt kind of like a fraud. Like, I guess I'll put this. I don't really know. As I filled out all the standardized testing and all the college surveys, I didn't feel like I had the right answer. Until finally, when I was a senior, one of the few times I felt like I really heard God's voice, almost in an audible way in my spirit, in my mind, God said he wanted me to give my life serving the church. And that was great. It was clarifying. It gave me direction. But then there, new questions started coming. Then people are like, well, are you going to be like the main pastor? Are you going to have your own church? Are you going to lead the music? Are you going to work with kids, youth? How are you going to serve the church? And I was still kind of unsure. All those feelings of what do you want to be when you grow up? The anxiety of having to answer that question, it, I thought it would go away, but it didn't really go away. But the overwhelming answer from my heart and from talking to people that knew me and from counselors and mentors and those kind of things was that I should pursue leading music in the church. Seemed like the logical thing. And now you knowing me and being part of Common Ground, you think, well, yeah, that makes sense. At least I, 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 hope, I hope you do. Um, <laughs> you're like, yeah, that, that makes sense. That, that seems right. And I was so filled with excitement, I started to take these steps necessary for this journey. I was accepted and I enrolled at, at Baylor University in Waco. I declared my intention to be a church music major. And unfortunately, when I arrived there for my freshman orientation, the week before classes were to start, I found out that even though I was enrolled at Baylor, I wasn't enrolled in the music school. There was like some extra steps you had to take. And apparently I missed the memo. And so even though I had housing and scholarships and all those things lined up, I was not officially a student of the music school. And so I could not be a church music major. But there, thankfully, there was a guy that was helpful, an advisor, and he said, you know, we haven't had a church music major with the scholarship that you got in at least 10 years. Let me talk to some people. I think they're going to want to get you in. And I was like, okay, well, that sounds good. So we talked to some people, pulled some strings, and I, all I had to do was during that week of freshman orientation, I had to audition on piano and audition uh, by singing, audition for voice. And they would place me in a class, 
And if I was good enough, they would enroll me and, and get me going. It's like, okay, well, you know, this is what I want to do. I guess that's what I have to do. So I did my piano audition. The piano was my first instrument. Started when I was like nine years old. No, six years old. And, uh, and so that was kind of no problem. Practiced a little bit, played a song, got enrolled into a uh, piano class. Then I went to the voice audition. And this one went a little differently. I don't know if you know what a voice audition is like in a college vocal department, but they call it a vocal jury. And there's a reason for that. Okay, so you walk into this cold room with tile. You give your music to a piano player that you've never met before. You hope they're good. And then you walk to the center of the room, kind of like this, and there's seven or eight chairs full of the professors in a little arc in front of you, maybe like from me to Susan here, really close. Okay, and they're all staring at you, and they're like, okay, go ahead. Well, I was scared to death. Even though I had been singing in church my whole life, this was a totally different experience. I'd never done anything like this. And so when you're nervous and you sing, those two things kind of work against each other sometimes. And I kind of closed down. It wasn't my best audition, I will admit. That's for sure. Well, then they kind of interviewed me afterward. And the head of the department looked at me and said, so I see on your application that you feel like God wants you to lead music in the church. And I was, I kind of, you know, perked up a little bit. I was like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's it. That's, that's what's given me clarification. That's what give, it's given me direction. And her statement still, even now, kind of what she said immediately following that still hurts to this day. She said, well, it's amazing to me how many people feel called by God to do something that he didn't give them the talent to do. Yeah. Thank you. That really hurt. So I didn't get in. I thought I had everything figured out. The advisor still tried to pull some strings. He got me into a, a vocal um, class with a, a graduate student. It wouldn't be officially for the degree, but maybe I could kind of, it was kind of a probation thing, so I could kind of work my way in. But I was like, you know what, God? Apparently, I'm going the wrong way. I dropped all my music classes, except for that vocal class. And I went through that vocal semester. But I became kind of a journeyman student at that point and ended up with a business degree. Went to seminary, got a Bible degree, and now I lead music in a church. <laughs> yeah, you figure that out. I don't know. But my entire understanding of what God wanted for my future was suddenly and completely derailed. And Derek explained to us a couple of weeks ago as we started this series in Philippians, the Apostle Paul kind of had a similar experience. Here he, I'm not comparing myself to the Apostle Paul, even though we have the same name, but similar experience. He, he was a brilliant scholar, an eloquent public speaker, a fearless lawyer, a highly trained theologian, and a Roman citizen. A very unique combination of like the best aspects of society in that day. He was like the man, okay? He had all the things going for him. And then he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and everything changed. His life was mapped out. His prospects for success were incredibly high. And even after his conversion experience, despite the direction changing, Paul still had really high expectations for what God would accomplish through his life, for what God wanted him to do. But now here he is, writing this letter to the church in Philippi, probably on death row. He was probably in an execution jail. This might not be the time he was killed. We don't know for sure how the timing worked. But 
That was the kind of place he was. Chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day. They would change like every six hours. So he had four different people every day chained to him. I don't think that's how he would have mapped his life out. I don't think those were the expectations he probably had, even after the light blinding him on the road to Damascus. But here he is writing to the Philippians to encourage them, to say, it's okay. God's got this under control. He's writing to help them have the proper perspective of success. He's writing to make sure they keep their hope and their sense of purpose in the right place. And in doing so, I think we can find some help in answering the same kind of questions we have when life doesn't turn out like we hope or expect. When the direction our life goes maybe isn't what we would have written in our memory book in elementary school. But God is still in control and still has a plan. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for today. I thank you that you are in control. I thank you that the battle is yours and that what we need to be is faithful. What we need to do is trust. What we need to do is follow and abide. And God, I pray that that message would sink into my heart today and that it would sink in for for each and every one of us in the way that we need it to. In your name I pray, amen. So I want to let you know the program notes are wrong. Okay, so that's Derek's message from last week. If you didn't know that, you just outed yourself about not being here last week, so that's okay. But um, no, those, those notes in the middle that where you write, those are wrong. The app is correct. The outpost questions are correct. We just, when we ordered the program this week, got the wrong notes. So you're going to have to write your own notes. Um, I'll try to do a good job of leading you through it. I think you can handle it, but don't try to fill in those blanks. It's not going to work, all right? We're in Philippians 1, 19 through 26 picking up where Derek left off last week, uh, verses 19 through 26. Let me just read that, and then we'll look at it a little bit at a time. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to see you again." So following up from last week, we saw Paul was rejoicing in spite of his circumstances because the message of Jesus was still spreading, even though he was there in jail. The message of Jesus was still getting out. The gospel was being shared. And we see him here continue to list some reasons that he's going to rejoice. And in this list, I think we see how to have a godly perspective in the midst of those difficult or unrealized expectations. So what can you do to have joy like Paul when life doesn't turn out? like you hoped or expected. I think, again, there's three reasons here. And the first is in verse 19. Paul's confidence is in God's power. His confidence is in God's power. He says, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So there's two parts to this confidence that he has. He has confidence, first of all, through their prayers. 
You know, if there was anyone that had a reason to give in to despair and disappointment because of his circumstances, I think the Apostle Paul would be at the top of the list. And all the terrible details of his situation, he encapsulates in a little word, this. He says, I know that this, meaning my imprisonment, being chained to a Roman guard, probably waiting to die, not being able to be there with you. That's that little word, this. The terrible circumstances. He says, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance because of my confidence in God's power, first of all, through your prayers. So he knew because of the special relationship he had with this church, they were praying for him. He knew they were lifting him up. He knew they were uh, sharing that burden with him by praying for him. He knew that God heard their prayers and would be faithful to complete his will in and through Paul's life. So, As we form relationships with one another, as we find our place of belonging in the body of Christ, like Derek talked about a couple of weeks ago, we have this unique opportunity to pray for one another and to know that we're being prayed for. It's not just a religious exercise. It's not just a personal thing. It should not just be a nice platitude that we say to someone to try and comfort them. Oh, I'll pray for you when actually we're not going to do that. There's a power in this connection that we have with God on behalf of one another. Our faithful prayers for one another make an impact. And Paul said, you know, I have, I have confidence despite what's going on around me in God's power because I know that you are praying for me. Walking into or through a difficult circumstance has a very different dynamic when you know God's people are praying. So, are you praying for anyone? Are you praying for anyone? Could they write to you and say, I have confidence in God's power because I know you are praying for me. It makes a difference. It makes an impact. Think about the missionaries around the world knowing that people are praying for them. Think about the person going through a difficulty in your office knowing that you're praying for them. The power of this goes so far beyond what we can even think or imagine. Pray for others. It gives us confidence in God's power. Secondly, Paul has confidence in God's power because of the help of the Spirit. So no matter what situation he finds himself in, Paul knows that the presence of God is with him. Paul knows that God is with him. It's not some kind of special privilege just reserved for the few elite religious people. As a follower of Christ, you have the promise of the presence of God through the Holy Spirit in your life. As a follower of Jesus... And Jesus says that's even better than having him around during his time on earth. I've started watching uh, The Chosen quite a bit, and the thing that really um, gets me is bringing to life these interactions and these relationships. Um, And just, it makes you kind of think, well, man, I wish I could have been there, right? But here Jesus says in John 16, 7, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, meaning the spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. It's to our advantage that we're not with Jesus while he was on earth. That kind of sounds weird, but that's his promise. The presence of the Holy Spirit in our life, the presence of God in our life is amazing. And Paul knew the gift of the spirit, and it gave him confidence even in these dire circumstances. So he knew he had the prayers of the people on his behalf. 
and he knew he had the presence of God uh, with him. There's something different about heading into difficulty knowing that you have God with you. Are you a follower of Jesus? Have you said yes to his invitation on your life? Do you know the presence of God in your life through the gift of the Holy Spirit? You can. Maybe today is the day. So Paul has confidence in God's power, and we can too. And the second reason he says that he has joy in this passage is that his focus is on magnifying Jesus. His focus is on magnifying Jesus, not on his circumstances. He says, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, what is shame? He says he doesn't want to be ashamed. You know, we kind of all know what shame is, unfortunately, don't we? We all know that feeling. It's that sense of guilt or failure that you feel when you don't measure up in front of someone that you very much want the approval of. Kind of like me in front of the vocal jury. I think that could be described as shame, devastation, (laughs) confusion, lots of big words. Um, We know what shame is because we've seen it in others. We know what shame is because we've felt it ourselves. But what's the opposite of shame? Assume that at that vocal jury, they all stood and gave me a standing ovation after my audition. That would have felt pretty good. You get the approval of the person, the group you desperately want it from. That's the opposite, right? It's applause. It's cheers. The opposite of shame is honor. You feel honor. You're being honored. But Paul says his greatest hope was that he would not be ashamed. In other words, to not worry about the approval of anyone or any group. And he's a little unusual because for him, the opposite of shame was not personal honor, right? For him, the same reason he wouldn't be ashamed is the solution to not being ashamed. And that is that Christ would be honored. That his focus would always be on honoring Christ. His sole focus in every possible way. Because he understood that what we love truly determines what we will feel shame about. What we love truly determines what we will feel shame about. If you love for people to think highly of you, you're going to feel horrible when they don't. But Paul loved Jesus more than anything. As he says here, more than even life itself. He wanted to go be with him, but he knew he still had something to do. And whenever you cherish something that much, you're going to tell as many people as possible about it. You're going to draw attention to it so that they can experience the same thing that you have. You're going to honor it above all else. I was reading a devotional that my my friend recently wrote, and he sent to me to, to do a review on Amazon. It's all about worship. And in the introduction, he talked about being at his favorite NFL team's game, their first playoff game in like a lot of years. He must be a Cowboys fan. Uh, so they were at this, this first playoff game in a lot of years, and he said, whenever something good happened for the team, you didn't have to, like, coach anyone on what to do, how to celebrate, right? They just naturally went crazy because their favorite team, like, moved a ball down the field, and right? It seems so petty, but we know how to cheer for that. We know how to honor that. We shouldn't have to be coached or prodded or told how to worship and celebrate who God is and what he's done. And that's what Paul is saying here. He says, my favorite thing, my favorite thing in all the world is to honor 
Jesus with everything that I am. And that's what he tried to do. That's what his focus was. And his reason for continuing despite this incredibly difficult circumstances was so that he could do that. His main and sole purpose. And he says to live is Christ. He says if I have to live, it's going to be about Jesus. If I've got a purpose to be here, it's going to be about Jesus. And he's able to encourage the Philippians even though they were fearful. They were unsure what was going to happen. What's going to happen to our church? What's going to happen to the gospel? If Paul is killed, he's in prison. What's going to happen? And he says the message is going to remain. It's not dependent on me. And whether through life or death, as long as Christ is honored, that's what matters. So then, again, this kind of begs the question, if this is what we need to do to be, uh, to be positive in these difficult circumstances when life throws us these curves, where is my focus? What am I focused on? What is it I seek to draw attention to with my life? What am I celebrating? What am I honoring? What do I truly love more than anything else? What do I cherish? Where do I look for approval? How do you answer those questions? We should seek, love, and cherish Jesus above all else. And our actions should seek his approval alone. Because anything else will not lead to the abundant life he promises us in John 10.10 where he says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Again, Jesus talking. That they may have it abundantly. And Paul remained joyful because his focus was on magnifying Jesus. Then the third reason he gives us is that his purpose is found in serving others. Again, it's about something outside of himself. His purpose for being there was about serving others. In verses 22 to 26, again, he says, If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two, meaning death and life. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. For your progress and join the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So again, his purpose is found in serving others. He's continuing this statement, to live is Christ, by explaining a little bit of what that means to him. Living for him means fruitful labor. He says, if I'm going to live, it means fruitful labor. So if we replace those words in the first phrase, you could say, for me to live is fruitful labor for Jesus. And he's honest about the struggle, right? He's honest about it. It's a really difficult balance for him. Imagine his circumstances. Of course, he might prefer death. He might prefer being with Jesus instead of what he was having to go through on a day-to-day, hour-by-hour basis. He would love more than anything to be released from this life and have that opportunity to be with Jesus. But he says, even though that would be far better than sitting here where I am, as good as that would be, staying is more necessary on your behalf. He says, I'm, God wants me here in order to serve you. Even though my situation is as bad as it could possibly be, I find purpose and motivation to live in serving Jesus by serving you, Paul says. And that service is to continue seeing them grow and to find their joy and their faith in Christ. And he circles back to that foundational thing he said, that they would glory in Christ Jesus alone, that they would have the same desire to honor Jesus above all else that he himself tried to show, tried to have. You know, I think we spend a lot of time focused on ourselves. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm the only one that does that. 
We spend a lot of time focused on ourselves. It's almost like we just want to stay there sometimes and almost wallow in it like a pig in the mud. That's kind of what our culture says we're supposed to do. Oh, yeah, it's all about you. Man, life has been so hard and terrible. It's, it's just all about you. Well, I love how Hannah's swim coach handles this. Hannah's a competitive swimmer. And when you're a swimmer, you have good days and bad days. You have good races and bad races, right? You don't always have the best start or the best turn or the best finish. You don't always get a, we call it a green time, because if it's in the red, it means you didn't beat your best time. Green means you set a new record. So we're looking for green times. Well, I love how her coach handles disappointment that's inevitable. She'll say, well, that wasn't the best race. If you want, you can go over there and cry about it. But when you're done with that, come talk to me. We'll talk about the next race. Right? And sometimes some of the swimmers will go over there and cry about it. Not the high school boys so much, but yeah. Um, they'll go over there and cry about it, and then they'll come back, and then they'll talk about what are we going to do in this next race? How are we going to handle this next race? It's always looking forward. Everyone has a bad race. You know, after my vocal audition, <laughs> where the path I thought God had for my life was completely derailed, I had a lot of moments of self-doubt. A lot of moments when I would stand up to do the thing that I thought God had called me to do, to lead a church in worshiping him through music. And I would hear that little voice say, it's amazing how God didn't give you the talent to do this. You sure you're supposed to be up there? You sure this is what God wants for your life? And that little voice of doubt would just uh, cause me to really have trouble doing the thing that I felt like God wanted me to do. And during college, I had the chance to be the student and worship pastor of a really small church. Smallest church I ever served until I came here uh, when Common Ground was first getting started. And they said no to me. We don't think you can handle doing the music. We'll let you work with our youth. That kind of sounds wrong, doesn't it? We'll let you work with our youth, but you don't have the talent to lead us in music. Again, that voice just talking to me telling me, you're not good enough, and it, it caused me to miss that opportunity that God had presented uh, before me there in college. So for 13 years, uh, I would do the music kind of on the side, work with kids, work with students, but God used all that time to build in me in different ways to prepare me for what he had next, even ultimately to be here doing what I'm doing with you at Common Ground. But for so long, I had the wrong perspective. I was looking for the approval of people instead of following faithfully what I knew God had called me to do. And the Apostle Paul acknowledges, he says, this isn't exactly how I thought my life was going to turn out. As a matter of fact, I'd rather be with Jesus. Dying and being with him was preferable to what he was dealing with. But then he's reminded, and he in turn reminds us, that to live is Christ. To live is Christ. It should be all about him. Did life throw you a curve? Things haven't shaped up like you hoped or dreamed? To live is Christ. Have you lost hope? Have you been beaten down by disappointment? To live is Christ. Do you have a little voice that talks in your head every now and then telling you you're not good enough to do that thing, whatever it might be that you feel like God is leading you to do? To live is Christ. It doesn't matter who you are or what you do. Wherever God has placed you, in whatever capacity you find yourself, to live is Christ. 
Just look at our vision over here. We're fueling a movement of God's people surrendered to his mission wherever he places us. Whether it's on stage singing songs or... That's all I know because that's what I do. What else is there to do? <laughs> you fill in the blank. Where has God placed you? What neighborhood are you living in? Uh, who do you have around you? What job do you have right now? Even if it's not the one you really wish you had. It's just a job, not a career. Whatever kind of things people say. To live is Christ. I don't know where you are. I don't know what little voices you might have holding you back from finding your true purpose and joy in Christ. But I can say after allowing God to bring me to the other side, that his way is the best way. That living means fruitful labor for him by serving others. To live is Christ. It reminds me of a story I heard about a little boy getting a chance to ride on his dad's uh, ship. His dad was a kind of a merchant ship captain, and he brought his son along on one of their journeys. And about two days out into the ocean, they hit a big storm. So, of course, it's like batting down the hatches. That's the right thing to say, right? I'm not, I'm not much of a, of a sailor. So they, they're getting ready, and the storm is coming, and they're getting in the safe places. The people that have to do the things that they have to do, even though the rain is here, they're doing their thing. But the little boy was kind of just perched in a place that didn't seem very safe. And one of the crew members came by, and he said, hey, you need to, you need to get down below. Your dad would want you to be safe. And he said, no, I'm right where I want to be. Because, you see, there's a little window right here, <laughs> and I can see my dad, and I know he's gotten through a lot of storms with this ship, and he's going to do it again. <laughs> he had confidence because of the father that he had confidence in, because he had brought him through. He knew he had gotten through before. We can do the same thing. God is there. He's not surprised by anything you're going through. He doesn't let anything in our lives go to waste. He wants to use everything to bring honor and glory to him. And so even the yucky stuff, even the hard stuff, maybe if we turn our perspective out away from ourselves, he wants to use that to help someone else. He wants to use that to connect with someone else. Just like Paul said, hey, here I am in jail, chained to a Roman guard, waiting to be killed. But for me to live as Christ, and that means serving you. I think if we kind of flipped our perspective sometimes, we would find joy in places that people wouldn't understand if we would just make it about someone else instead of about ourselves. So when your expectations for life get derailed, when your circumstances are darker than they've ever been, you can find comfort and joy in the same things that Paul did. You can have confidence in God, having people on your side praying for you, and knowing that you have his presence with you. You focus on magnifying Christ, not in gaining the approval of any people, and you find your purpose in serving others. I think if Paul was asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? <laughs> he would answer with, faithful. Because for him, to live is Christ. Let's pray together. God, I just thank you for that picture of that little boy looking through the window. And I think of that song, Praise You in This Storm. That God, we know you are with us. We know you will guide us. And sometimes we lose that perspective. And so, God, I, I pray if there's anyone in this room today that needs that encouragement, that they would leave 
holding on to those three things that Paul gave us. I pray if there's anyone in this room that, that doesn't know your son as their savior, that they would answer that invitation. Maybe you're calling them today to say yes to you and that they would answer that invitation that you're giving them uh, to be forgiven, to have you as their savior, to have the presence of God with them uh, through the promise of your spirit. God, we thank you for the opportunity of worship and for the opportunity of gathering, for the opportunity to be encouraged um, because of the things we see in your word. Thank you for the faithfulness of Paul, even though his life uh, went so many different directions from what he probably expected. And God, I pray that you would find that same faithfulness in us. We would start this week uh, if we haven't already. And we love you. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so as we've said before, we've got some next steps. Uh, and I'm not sure if those are right because of the whole program thing. So I want to I tell you exactly these next steps. And you can do this on the program. You can do it electronically. You can just make it a personal thing. But we love celebrating with you what God is saying and how he's leading. And maybe this week you just need to commit to pray for someone specifically. Pray for someone specifically. Write their name down. Write down what you're praying for them about. And then when the time is right, when it seems appropriate, maybe share with them, hey, you know what? I'm praying for you. And you can say that from, from a sincere heart. And you can encourage them with this confidence like we've talked about today. Maybe you can admit that you have shame that comes from seeking the approval of people instead of focusing on pleasing God. Think about what you love the most. And is that approval causing you to feel this shame when you don't measure up? You, you can't do anything to lose the way that God feels about you. God loves you. He created you for a purpose. He wants to redeem you and use you in his kingdom in ways that you can't imagine. Sometimes we don't believe it. Sometimes we won't surrender to it. Admit that you have shame because you're looking for that in the wrong place. Or maybe commit to actively serving someone this week. Might be a small thing, but do something that's outside of yourself. Do something that makes an impact on someone else. A small note that you write. Visit them in the hospital. Whatever the thing might be that comes to mind or, or comes to your situation, serve someone this week. And of course, every week, next step, say yes to Jesus. I'll be in the back. I'd love to talk to you about that if that's something that God is doing in your heart. Every week, next step, putting prayer requests in, in the prayer walls because there are people that will be praying for you like we talked about. A prayer team that takes those every week and prays for them specifically. Leaders in this church that get those uh, sent to them and pray for them specifically. So if you want to have that confidence knowing you're being prayed for, that's what those prayer walls are for each and every week. Or if you want to let people know the difference God's made in your heart by being baptized, we have one coming up in the next few weeks, and uh, we'd love to talk with you and, and lead you through that. But we're going to continue to worship. Today's a day where we have communion, another opportunity for us to respond to God, to say thank you for what you did to make this whole thing possible, this relationship with God, the the broken body of his son, Jesus, and the blood that Jesus spilled so that we could be forgiven and have life abundant and eternal. Um, we have stations in the various corners. Uh, we invite you to prepare your heart, those of you that are followers of Jesus, and then take communion as we continue to be led in worship by these students. Um, let this be a time for you to connect with God and nothing else. Let's, let's stand to do that.